Welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, JR. Great to be with you. Yeah, so good to be together today. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to another episode here. But before we jump into that, we want to talk about family and yes. kids. Because yes. uh, for those of us who are pastors, our families are intricately involved. Uh-huh. And sometimes they get the brunt of all the ministry junk that happens. And uh, so it's hard. It's hard. My, my son, uh, who just turned 10, came home the other day and said, Dad, am I a PK? <laughs> and I said, well, where, what does that mean? He said, it means pastor's kid. And uh, I said, where did you hear that? He said, I was talking to Kylie, which is your daughter. <laughs> and uh, you know, your daughter said that she's a PK. Yeah. And so that was on Bennett's mind as he was thinking about this. And so, yeah, just thinking about the PKs, maybe even the MKs, the missionary kids that are out there. Like, how do we be parents that prioritize our family when it seems like ministry can be all-encompassing and sometimes overwhelming. So we want to talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, it, it and I think even just to say, it is hard. I, I do get the sense that being a pastor and a, a dad um, and a parent, you have to put parent before pastor. Yeah. I mean, I just, I feel like... Your your home is your number one parish, and yeah. and again, I think it's tough because I I grew up where most of the pastors' kids at the church that I worked at before, uh, when they ran away, ran away to our house, which was really kind of funny. <laughs> um, but we're grateful for that. But even realizing, like I saw how difficult it was for kids in certain spaces to feel that pressure, like they have to perform and they have to do this and they have to be good, and you know, we just really want to try to allow our kids space to be kids and realize that like, even just the way that that, I think you set that up really well within Renew, even before I got there mm. in terms of just saying, Hey, like my, my wife isn't going to be the organist. She's yeah. not going to be the one making meals every time something happens. Not There's, hosting every baby shower. Right. A wedding shower. Right. Yeah. But it's, we allow, I think just having that kind of baked into our DNA has been really helpful. I know for Mayor, she's really felt like being part of Renew for the last uh, eight years has been this really great opportunity where she could just be her. And it, yeah. I think there's some, there's a freedom there. My kids feel that too. I mean, my kids are, I love my kids. They're great. Um, I have zero expectation that my kids will be in ministry. It'd be awesome if they would, but I, but even with that, like we've redefined ministry, like ministry is whatever, anything you do in life, that's ministry. That's an opportunity for ministry. It's not just being a pastor. Yeah. Um, but what are some things that you have done that that you, just as you're thinking off the top of your head, that have been helpful in terms of just cultivating health in your kids and identity? Well, we want to preface this first before I answer this by saying that you and I are the first to admit we are far from perfect parents. Amen. And we're not called to be perfect parents, but we are called to be learning parents. Yes. And that you and I are always learning, how can we do this better? What are ways we can really equip? Um, so there are a few things. I think uh, and I had a great model. My my parents uh, were fantastic. They still are. My dad is one of my best friends. He was the best man in our wedding. Um, so I had a great model. And I've always said, if I can be half the dad my dad was to me, that if I can be half as good to my kids, I'll be pleased. Um, and he wasn't perfect, but he was such a wonderful model. Uh, and so I want to be that to my sons. But one of the things that I ask um, occasionally, I wouldn't say frequently, but definitely regularly and, and occasionally is to my kids, how can I be a better dad? 
And that's, I mean, as soon as it leaves my mouth, I'm just like, <gasps> like uh, I just like brace myself. But I'm really grateful for the way at 13 and 10, they're able to engage in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, what are some things that you wish dad would continue to do? And then also, where, where are some areas where dad needs to improve? How can I be a better dad? How can I support you and make sure you know that you're loved, but also make sure, you know, I said, the goal is not for you to be happy kids. The goal is for you to be happy adults. And which sometimes means I'm going to make you unhappy as a kid. Yes. And um, so if that's the vision and that you grow up to be passionate men who love Jesus, like, how can I help you do that? And so I think former generations would say like, that isn't for them to speak into, but I, I do think we, at 13 and 10, I, I really want them to say, like, Dad, it would really be helpful if you did this. Doesn't mean I do everything they say. I just want to hear yes. that and kind of develop, a I don't know, a social contract with them through that discussion. So that's the first thing that, that comes to mind. Mm. But what about you? What are some ways you cultivate that? Yeah, some of the some of the things that we've done is we really try to do uh, experiences together, um, and I I think speaking specifically from a dad of a son, we we spend a lot of time fishing together, and uh, I I really do think discipleship happens in in a lot of men's life, uh, shoulder to shoulder, like doing something together has been really important for for my son Caleb, and so. We'll spend a lot of time fishing. We'll spend a lot of time building things outside or just just doing stuff together. And for Kylie and I, it's been really neat. We've really engaged over music. And so music and art. And uh, I, I am in, I am a I'm a creative who was locked in the cage that of not being able to be creative for many, many years. And so my daughter has helped unleash that. Um, and I also I need to thank Mike Snedeker. Um, he is a, he's a pastor pretty close to where we are. Um, but I watched him with his uh, with his daughter who's in college a few I guess it was back in August of this year, and I saw this beautiful relationship of a dad and a daughter, and how a dad had cultivated um, love for his daughter well, and her daughter his daughter felt safe, and that like unleashed for me. I mean, like my daughter and I, we cuddle on the couch, we hug. Like I like I. I don't want another man to be the first person that says I love you and for her to feel love. And so I just feel like as a, you know, for dads who have daughters, man, like love your girls, dance with your girls, spend time with them and just capture their heart. I, it's like Mike unlocked something in me that I never knew was there. I mean, I grew up with a brother and a sister who was much, much younger than I was. And so I, I knew how to do the outdoor stuff and, and I'm grateful my daughter loves that too. Um, but I think all that to say, my wife and I just really want to be attentive to our kids, but we also realize they're kids and yeah. they're not our friends. And I think that's that's been the biggest thing. Like my parents did a great job of being our parents and not trying to be our friends. Uh. And I think it was neat to see how because of that, when when my brother and I grew up, we became friends with our parents because we knew what it was to respect and love them. And so I think for me, those are just some of the things that kind of come to mind. It probably feels a little bit like a drinking from a fire hose at this point in time, but there's just so much that we're just really grateful. The other thing too, I think about a conversation I had with, uh, with a family from Vermont, um, when our son was for, we were brand new parents, you know, we were just kind of locked in the house. Um, and we had friends that say, listen, uh, these kids came into your world. Uh, so don't stop doing stuff like it's going to be slower, but don't be afraid to go out. And if your kid screams, it's OK. That's what kids do. And they'll learn. They'll they'll come into your world and try to figure out some of these things. And you have to really readjust some stuff. But just remember that you're discipling them as much as they are discipling you. 
And I was like, man, that was so helpful too. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been really exciting. Um, just recently, the beginning of March, um, Bennett, who was just, just turning 10, um, we did this three years ago with Carter when he was, when he was 10, but of giving them a challenge. And the challenge is if they choose to read every day in the Bible with dad for a whole year, we read through the whole Bible in a year, that they can choose any trip anywhere in the lower 48 states in the U.S. to of their choosing to do whatever we want. Now, they I'm not going to force them to read the Bible, but if they want to do that, they can choose wherever we go for three days when we're all done. Carter did it. He loved it. First month, he's motivated because there's a trip. Then after a month, it became just a rhythm and time to spend time with dad and with scripture. And so Bennett saw his older brother do that. And so he's been chomping at the bit. So we just started. And so it's been great. I get, he, he got to order his own Bible. We ordered mm. him a Bible of his, his choosing. We use the new living translation, you know, because uh, sixth grade reading level, as we talked earlier on an episode, but um, it's been so great. I read an old Testament passage. He reads the New Testament passage. Then we alternate verses in a Psalm or Proverb. So I would say ah, odds or evens. Good. You want the odd verses or the even verses? So this morning was in Proverbs. So he he took the even verses. I read the odd. We kind of a responsive reading call to worship kind of alternating reading, which is great. Um, so yeah, I read Old Testament. He reads New Testament, Psalm or Proverb. And then we pray together. It takes about 20, 25 minutes. And it's great. Um, when I'm gone, uh, he knows it's his responsibility. I'll read by myself on a trip. And he will read by himself, and then we'll we'll call each other and talk about it. That's so, so it's it's been great. And Bennett is a great question asker, and mm-hmm. so some of the questions that he he's asking are just fantastic. And it, some of them make me smile, some of them make me tear up. Um, but I, I I told him uh, I gave him a pen, I gave him his Bible, I gave him a journal, and I said, "Don't let anybody tell you you can't write in your Bible." You can't mark up your Bible so you have questions or you circle something that's important or put an exclamation point or underline it, whatever you want to do. And uh, I look over two days ago and there's like, I think he had underlined or circled more than what was not circled or underlined. (laughs) Butchered the whole page and I just bit my lip. I didn't want to laugh. I I think it's so cute. But if it helps him to pay attention, I mean, that's the most marked up I've ever seen a Bible. But if he's paying attention and asking questions. So we're writing things down like, buddy, what is a covenant? So we talked about Noah recently. Like, what does a covenant mean? So we had to find that. And in Matthew, the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? So we're writing those down in our journal. So we're at the very beginning, just just a little bit in, and we're going to do this every day for a year, um, but super excited about it. It was a fantastic exercise with Carter three years ago. We're off to a great start now. So if any of you out there are interested, feel free to email you email me and I'd be glad to send you our reading plan and encouragement along the way, even some links. Uh, I was asked by the American Bible Society to write three articles on how do you do this with kids. So we can put those in the show notes if that's helpful um, to just give parents some more resources and tips mm. if you want to try this uh, with your own kids. So Yeah. I, and again, JR, I just want to honor your heart, man. I mm. love the way that you are discipling your boys. Mm. I mean, it is just so beautiful. And I think what I appreciate, what, you know, a lot of you hear us on the podcast and it's, it's really fun and we have a great time, but... I just appreciate that that I get a chance to work with a guy who like the stuff that we talk about, he lives Mm -hmm. and I'm just really grateful for your heart, man. Like Mm -hmm. I hearing that stuff, I'm tearing up because it's like, this is just the guy that I know. And the way you're imparting that on your Mm -hmm. boys is just such a blessing. And I'm Mm -hmm. so glad, so, so glad uh, 
that your boys get a chance to do that with you. Well, thank you. Don't make me cry, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Our guest today is Keisha Polonio. For the past 20 years, Keisha has worked in diverse leadership roles that have served some of her community's most vulnerable individuals. She is a results-driven leader, certified growth coach, speaker, and missionary, whose expertise and global heart extend to both the private and public sectors. Currently, Keisha serves as an activist, chief storyteller, and champion for created women, a ministry committed to supporting vulnerable women caught in the sex industry in Tampa, Florida. In addition, she passionately worked as a trainer and mentor for missional leaders with the Underground Network for over 10 years. In partnership with this nonprofit ministry that exists to inspire, engage, connect, and empower Christ followers, Keisha equipped leaders, churches, and networks to clarify and achieve their kingdom dreams. Keisha is also the co-founder and co-director of Roots and Branches, a ministry specifically committed to training leaders of color to cultivate deeper understanding of their ethnic and cultural identity. This foundation informs their leadership and engagement in the work of racial reconciliation and justice. Keisha embodies the work that she calls others to as a proud Belizean woman who is a wife and mother of two boys. She co-leads a house church with her husband, loves cupcakes, and is a kidney cancer survivor. We hope that you enjoy this interview with Keisha Polonio. Well, hi, Keisha. It's really good to have you on uh, the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast this beautiful day. Well, it's beautiful here. Uh, being in being in Philadelphia this time of year at the end of winter, sometimes it's kind of ugly, but it's actually a nice day. How is it down in Tampa? It's nice. It's chilly. It's 60s, 70s. So <laughs> we have our jackets on and we're, you know, trying to truck through the weather, but the sun is out. So we're good. Yeah. Nice. Well, that's great. Well, we had an opportunity to hear from Keisha at the Ecclesia National Gathering in Orlando. Uh, we previously had on Carolyn Moore, who was also one of the speakers yes. at the Ecclesia National yeah, Gathering. So it's good to have you with us here, Keisha. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your story. For those of, you, those of our listeners who don't know your story, who are you and how did you come to be in ministry? Yeah. Um, I was originally born in Belize in Central America, uh, traveled to the States with my parents when I was very young and grew up in Long Beach, California. until I was about 12. So I was like total California girl all the way with rice and beans at home every day. Um, the reason my parents immigrated to the States is that they wanted, my dad wanted to go to school. So after he got his master's degree, he's like, okay, we're going back to Belize. And I'm like, uh, yeah, no, I love to visit on vacation, but move. And so we moved in between that year, um, of middle school and high school. So I jumped into the Belizean education system in high school, which was rough. Mm. Uh, it was a culture shock. Um, I mean, I grew up very Belizean, my parents, you know, all of that, but it's nothing like being in the context full on with people that don't know you, don't love you, don't care. Mm. Um, and so they would call me Yankee, Yankee girl. 
So I had a strong American accent, couldn't talk Creole, which is like the dialect there. Um, and so I, I stuck out, but I felt like the Lord really, I mean, that transition, although hard, and I think I cried, my mom said every day for a month, the first person oh, that was there, um, I, I wanted, I felt like the Lord wanted to do a deeper thing with me in regards to my ethnic identity and what it meant to be a Belizean, what it meant to be like a Belizean American immigrating back to the States to finish college. So um, I was in Belize, loved it, uh, started doing ministry with young people there when I was there, um, and then came to college to finish my degree um, at the University of South Florida here in Tampa. <clears throat> And uh, got involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where we were trying to, you know, reach everybody on our campus. Um, this idea of like, who are you called to became a real thing to me. Um, and so um, graduating that space and then kind of going back into traditional church, where the only options I had were singing on the worship team, helping in kids ministry, or helping in the women's ministry, I just kind of felt like, but there's more, right? Like we could do more because in college they told me anywhere, pick anywhere, do anywhere, go anywhere. And now it's like, actually you have three options. Um, and so I helped start an organization uh, here in Tampa that does work, um, we call them micro churches, so small expressions of the church um, that goes into every corner of the city saying like, again, we're going to reach these places for the kingdom. And we call them micro churches, which you guys are familiar with, um, because there is a missional component, there's a worship component, and there's a community component. So if you're going to seek some pocket of the kingdom together that is centered on Jesus, then we say, okay, that's the church and we support you and rally you. And so I've been doing missional churches um, for about 15, 13, 15 years now. I've been a microchurch leader. I've started five or so house churches. Um, you know, I was a director of one pretty pretty big microchurch called Created. Um, and so that's kind of like mish, like ministry wise. But I got married in between all of that. My husband followed me from Belize and was just like, the Lord told me. And I was like, he didn't tell me. But <laughs> <laughs> the Lord don't work like that. Excuse me. Read your Bible. Um, uh, but yeah, the Lord finally talked to me and he was right. So whatever. Um, but we had two kids. Two, I have two um, boys, uh, 13 and 10. And um, yeah, I'm still leading one of probably my favorite microchurch expressions that I've had in since ever. I'm leading that right now, and that's called Kindred. So, mm. yeah, tell okay. us a little bit about about Kindred. Yeah, Kindred is we, we came up with the name. We wanted to feel like somehow, even when we're apart, there's a sense of like connectivity. There's a sense of like family. Like we're kindred. We get each other. We're kin. Um, and so we have dinner around my big, large table um, every Sunday, and it's really good food. Um, it's predominantly people of color. We're not exclusive, um, but it, our microchurch does center uh, the expressions and the needs of people of color. And so we do have white people that come, but I think in that space, if people are trying to figure out their own ethnic identity, which we are asking our white you know, brothers and sisters to do that. It just doesn't happen necessarily in this space mm -hmm. because 
they're centered in every other space outside of here. And so we want to try to center the hardships, the joys, the barriers, the challenges of what it looks like to be a person of color um, in, in our context. Reading the Bible, trying to figure out what does this mean for me and not trying to have to contextualize it from a white pastor up front. Like, mm. we're just trying to say, this is what it is, this is what it feels like. And it's really interesting because the white people here are like, oh my gosh, I have to try to contextualize what she's talking about. I don't know that reference to that movie. And I'm like, you know how many times I've had to sit through a passage, <laughs> do a message and be like, Talladega Nights? I don't... <laughs> I don't get it. I don't... <laughs> you know, so we're giving other references and they're just like, okay, let me write that down. Let me look that up later. And so it's stretching for them in a way that I think is healthy and good. Um, but it does center uh, the experiences of people of color. And so it's been such a gift. I it, It's on Sunday evenings and it is, I mean, literally, it feels like a Thanksgiving gathering every week where people come and it's a potluck style. And we have a theme. Um, and people stay at my house till like 10 o'clock afterwards talking and laughing and eating and helping me clean up and sweeping and washing dishes. And we start watching crazy YouTube videos afterwards and <laughs> jokes. And sometimes people have done yoga in my living room and I'm like, I'm going to my bed and my husband will lock up. But there's a sense <laughs> like, this is like the, you know, the grandmother's house where everybody gathers and we're kind of holding true to a kind of African-American tradition of like come and be and feast and also find like food for your soul. Sounds like church to me. Yeah. That sounds a lot like church. I was going to say. So what is it like? You've mentioned some of the struggles coming out of IV. Um, What is it like being a Belizean American, being a, a woman, a person of color and ministry that's something mm-hmm. that comes up on this podcast of like, what do you do when you're not feeling welcomed? What yeah. are some of those um, frustrations or those lies maybe you're tempted to believe? Uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I would assume you feel at times like an outsider. So like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, especially in the like missional movement, there's not a lot of people of color or women. Mm. And so when I do go to other places, in, in our context, there is. Um, in Tampa, there is, and I remember going to a conference about 10 years ago. That's my first kind of experience going somewhere else, talking about missional things, and could count the people of color that I could decipher on both hands. Like, it was a, it was a room of like 500 people. Mm. Um, and so I'm very aware that there's not a lot of people that look like me. Um, and that brings a lot of challenges. I think that one thing I get is, um, well, you know, your husband, <laughs> where's your husband? What is your husband? What, what is your husband? What's your husband and your husband and your husband? And I love my husband. I think he's great. But I'm the one that's kind of like upfront nationally. I'm the one upfront preaching. And I think a lot of people have issues with that um, or trying to figure out how to deal with the issues with that um, locally. I, I literally, we could do a whole podcast on on this conversation. I had one local pastor, uh, we were talking and I was talking to another woman on his staff and he comes up to me, literally pinches my cheek and says, you're so cute for a woman pastor. Uh, yeah. 
you're so cute for a woman leader. Look at you, you know? And I, I feel like that's the vibe that I usually get. Like, look at you. You're so cute for a woman leader. Look at you leading that little microchurch over there. Look at you trying to be all black and stuff. Look at you. You're so cute mm. for it. And I, I feel like that's a, a theme that I get. And so I think when people get to know me, I think they feel and sense um, the giftings of God on my life. And, um, but it's very different. I, I feel the tension, the way I, you know, um, JR, we were at a conference and I feel the tension in those spaces. I want to tell stories. I want to bring people in, in a way that's very different than the previous presenter that had a PowerPoint presentation. And I feel the tension of like, I, I, I want to be like, you know, that's, that's some of the lies. Like maybe I should have a PowerPoint presentation mm. and maybe if I knew all the Greek words and translated them pro- appropriately and said them right. And what, maybe I shouldn't tell that story. Um, maybe people would think I'm smart enough mm. that I'm good enough, um, that I should be here. Um, is what I have good enough is a mm. lie that I hear a lot. Is my storytelling good enough? Um, is the way that I try to listen for the Holy Spirit and try to preach a prophetic word good enough? Or do I need to have all the stats and all the, the, the right words and all the things, you know? Um, so that's, that's some of it. I think, I, I think I've been gifted um, by having a very African-American name. So Keisha is a very African-American name, which African-Americans are always just like, how did your mom find that in Belize? And I don't know. She said a random person. She liked it. But I think what happens is that I get to be a bridge. Um, A lot of times people assume I'm African-American because my name is Keisha. Um, And there's some tension because I think in the U.S., the black and white experience is very different than it is in Belize, which is a predominantly black country, um, Hispanic country. And so there's a tension that people feel with me that I can that's tangible when they just think, oh, you're African-American. But when they hear I'm from Belize, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I went on a cruise and I ate this stuff. And oh my gosh, I went snorkeling. And, and there's a like a sense of welcoming because I think they feel like that tension isn't present uh. with uh, international Black people. Uh. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about in the season is trying to figure out um, how do I do some reconciliation between the international Black community and the African-American community? Because the international Black community has um, a lot of uh, stereotypes and anti-Blackness towards Black people here and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I feel excited about what what is to come with that. I think I've had a lot um, of in-between moments to be able to figure some of that out. But uh, I feel very gifted. I feel feel very, not gifted, I feel very honored to be able to have the name that I have and um, be able to engage in both spaces and try to figure out how do we bring peace and reconciliation between my people. Mm-hmm. I well, first of all, Keisha, I just wanted to say uh, when when we heard you the first time I heard you talk was at the national at Ecclesia National Gathering, and I texted Jared right away. I was like, we have to have this beautiful lady on. She's gonna <laughs> she killed. I mean, you just you bring so much presence with you as a speaker that like I'm glad there's not this PowerPoint presentation. Like you be you, and I think that that prophetic voice is needed within our culture right now, and it's just beautiful. But I, I'm like hearing all this stuff, and I think it's interesting. 
because there's a lot of people listening that might be hearing some of these things for the first time. Like, wait, like, am I, do I preach a predominantly white, like, thing or, you know, what does it look like? You know, am I teaching mainly to men or women? And so can you, and you use this beautiful term, the bridge, you know, a bridge. Can you speak a little bit about how you see the way you're bridging like white and black and, you know, black and black and just different cultures in the space where you are right now? Yeah, I I think that uh, the Lord made it very clear late last year that he has called me to predominantly white spaces mm. to teach. Um, not necessarily, I think, to pastor and lead and care for and journey, because I think that is hard. So helping people, uh, white people in particular, that are starting out trying to figure out their own ethnic identity, trying to figure out their own racist beliefs and doing that work, it's a good work. It's a good work. It's a hard work. And it is very triggering to me. Um, as people, I, and I want people to be as honest as they need to be, um, but I think what I'm realizing now is that I can't, there, there are people of color that are called to those spaces to do that kind of bridging. I think what I feel called to is to go into that space and teach something that gets them stirring. And then they need to go back to those people, that, that, that community of people that has coveted with them to journey with them, see them grow and mature. Um, <clears throat> I think coming from a multi-ethnic space, though, um, that's really trying to figure that out. I think the tension, I'll give an example. You know, people would use an example, we're talking about TV, and they would say friends. Like, let's talk about friends. I would never use that example. I would use living single, um, which was... uh, that came out before Friends and which is like the actual archetype for Friends, but it's because it's, it's black people in, in New York kind of doing their thing, living singly and trying to, you know, and so what I realize is helpful is to just throw some of those things in there, throw in a couple of slang, throw in a couple of things that's actually organic and real to me mm. um, and stretch people just a little bit. They don't know that content. They don't know that. And I think white people don't know how to feel like, what do you mean? This Is this for me? Like that question. And for, for people of color, that's the world always. Like we're always trying to contextualize the commercials, the TV shows, the, the movies, the books. Um, and so I think helping my um white brothers and sisters um, uh, deal with some of that stuff. Sometimes it's very subtle. Uh, sometimes it's very upfront. Like if we're talking about racial justice and, you know, I'll tell really hard stories about my own experience, what it is trying to raise black boys in a world that sees them as men. And they're only, thir- you know, he's only 13 having to have hard conversations with um, my kindergartner on the first day of school about what it looks like to engage the police mm-hmm. at his school where white moms are just like, uh, I was telling him to have a good day and eat his lunch and make new friends. And my conversation was, this is how you interact with the police on the first day of school. Um, And so I know because I have the ability to preach and teach in certain spaces, I want to be as free and open to share that, to help people um, learn more about themselves, their own biases, their own beliefs, and hopefully see Jesus in the middle of the messiness because he's present and he's calling and he's doing a deep work in us. Um, but it is hard. It is hard. So, yeah. And I, you said something really interesting in terms of, um, just something that I, I think I've, I've never heard it phrased this way, but you said, you know, folks discovering their culture, identity, their cultural identity. I, I wonder how many people, 
in all areas in, in the gospel world or in the church world actually have even thought about cultural identity in terms of something that's discovering. And like, how do you see that kind of playing with also discovering our kingdom identity as well? Like, mm-hmm. how, how are they inter- interconnected? Yeah, I, I think it's all connected. I think mm-hmm. our kingdom identity is rooted in who we are, who God created us to be. I, I think about Moses a lot and him kind of being in a context that uh, stifled everything of who he was, his own being, his own people, his own heritage. Um, And, you know, for him, he had to leave the space to kind of regain a reality of who he was. Um, You know, me and my husband were just talking about this yesterday, and he was saying, I wonder if Moses' hesitancy with the Lord to come back to Pharaoh and getting Aaron was because he didn't speak the language. Like maybe he didn't feel like he could speak to his people in a way that had the right accent that, that they would know like, Oh, you're not one of us. Just, wow. you just wonder, you know, if that was some of the, the lies that he believed too. Um, and so I think it's, in, I think it's ingrained. I think when the Lord is calling you to go and speak, I think for him, I wonder if he just felt like maybe I would say, I don't feel black enough. I don't feel woman enough. Mm. Will they receive me? How will they receive me? And so I think it's all connected. I think Mm. white people need to hear from black people. I think white people need to learn from women. I think, you know, I think people of color need to hear the fullness of how God has called all of us. Um, And, you know, when I talked about like the black and the African-American international community, how do we see God reflected in ourselves? Um, you know, so I think it's so enmeshed. I think it's a part of the gift. I think it's a part of the piece of the puzzle that we bring. Um, and so to just say, well, we just want you to preach and not be fully woman and fully Belizean and fully black, just I, I don't, fully Belizean reflects Jesus, fully mm-hmm. black reflects mm-hmm. my father, fully mm-hmm. woman reflects the father. So it's just like, I look like him. I talk like him. My stories reflect his humor. Even though you don't laugh, <laughs> even though I don't laugh at Talladega Nights, it's okay. <laughs> Jesus probably would because it also reflects a part of his heart. And so I don't think it's possible, but I think, and some of the lies, I think that I try to. I think I remember the first time preaching, preaching in my head, like my white leader, like I need to come like this. I need to stand like this. I need to dress a certain way. Um, which was like a button down because all we had was the lapel. Um, and so you couldn't wear earrings because of the mic. Couldn't, you know, there was a lot of things that was just like you had to strip some of who you are away so that you can do some of the work that God's called you to do. And I just think, man, I think some of it is overt and I think some of it is, you know, unintentional, mm-hmm. but it's present. And so we always have to be fighting to grasp on to fully all of who we are and try to figure out, you know, Lord, my kingdom identity all together, holding on to all of them and not try to somehow parse them apart. Mm. So, mm. And, and even how that calls us into mission. I, I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful is the minute we discover our kingdom identity and how that's deeply enmeshed with our ethnic identity, that like, it's almost like that that brings forth new opportunity and possibility for our missional identity as well. And that just, I love how enmeshed all that is in the way that you're speaking about yes. this. Yes. Really, really good. I think there's, I think there's a gift for the Samaritan woman to like go back to her people. Like, mm. I just wonder if 
they heard her because it's like, she's one of us. Like there's something about going back to your people and speaking a word that just is different, just is different. And so I feel like God uses that time and time again throughout the Bible um, for his glory. Keisha, what does a healthy, flourishing Keisha look like? Um, a healthy, flourishing Keisha looks like one who is dreaming a lot, mm. has a lot of random ideas. Um, I think when I'm not flourishing, I don't dream. I don't, I can't hear the Lord speak. I think I, I don't have any new ideas for uh, you know how many podcast ideas I have? You know how many names for titles of books I have? It's just, it's just like in seasons where it's just like, oh, somebody should do that. I'm going back to school. And I didn't even think I told you guys this, but I'm going back oh. to school to get my master's in social work. Oh, that's great. And, yeah, I'm really excited. And I um, got an a idea to get on TikTok. So TikTok is a new, y'all not that old, right? Y'all know what TikTok is. <laughs> my sons are on TikTok. I play it all the time with my friends. It's, it's an old one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. Like, like, if I go on TikTok, I want to have a thing. It seems very funny. It seems very witty. It seems very niched. And I'm not a big social media person, but I'm just like, I want to get on TikTok. And then randomly one morning, I just felt like it was like, okay, when, when I start school, my tag is going to be the 40-year-old student. And I'm going <laughs> to talk about like the tension of being out of school. Love it. Love it. Love it. No, nobody <laughs> took my idea. No. I think when I'm flourishing, those stuff like that happens. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm eating right. I'm exercising. I'm having really great uh, community time that I feel very, I can be honest and confess and deal with some of the tensions. Um, me and my husband are good. We're not like annoyed with the world and each other, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with my relationship with Jesus. Like, do I hear him and do I feel the inspiration to, to create? Mm -hmm. So some of the things that, I mean, you, you have created quite a few beautiful ministries like created women and uh, roots and branches. Um, and can you, sp uh, first of all, can, can you talk a bit about uh, created women and just the passion and calling that you have for that yeah. and what it is too? Yeah. Well, I didn't start created. I came in about four or five years after it started, but I was around and I was friends with the people that started created. Um, and just, you know, remembering, thinking, praise God, people are doing work with women coming out of the sex industry, uh, going into strip clubs, doing some dangerous stuff um, that the kind of local church here was very nervous about people doing. Um, created still is doing going into the very dark places of our city, uh, in jails, um, on street corners, looking for prostituted women in strip clubs, in brothels, in lingerie shops. Um, currently they have a residential program. They're doing amazing, amazing things. Um, I think when I sensed the Lord calling me to be a part, um, I was like, not me because I don't know anything about that stuff. Like you want someone that knows 
something. This is how me and the Lord, y'all know, y'all pastors, this is how we were talking. Like, nah, you probably want somebody else, someone right. better, someone that has actually read a book about sex trafficking, <laughs> maybe ran a 4K for freedom, 5K for freedom, like, you know, all those, all those races they have, like someone that maybe had some kind of passion before. Um, and I just, you know, thought that guys, the only thing I've ever seen, I love telling this part. The only part that I've ever, the only thing I ever knew about sex trafficking was that movie taken, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, what's his name? Liam, Liam Neeson. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not like that. <laughs> I don't have special set of skills. I don't. No, you don't have a low voice and say, I'm going to come and I'm going yeah. to kill you I'm when going I to find kill you. you. When I find you. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm afraid. I fight or flight. I'm definitely flight all the uh, way. Uh. And so um, I just felt like the Lord, I was just telling the Lord, you probably want someone better. Mm. And I just felt like the Lord was just like, you know, I'm looking for someone to take a seat at the table. Like, are you just willing to take a seat? Mm. Are you willing to take a seat? And so I did, and it like changed my life forever. I obviously I had to learn a lot, and I failed a lot. Um, but seeing the beauty and the light in the darkness, walking on a street um, at twelve o'clock at night, and and trying to figure out what it looks like to walk with the Spirit of God—that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I feel that anywhere else than feeling alone on a street, walking to a woman and trying to befriend her, remind her that there's people, that there's a family of God who hasn't forgotten her and are willing to come. Um, But I think even more than that, like, man, the Lord still roams those streets after I go to bed at 12 o'clock and he's still present. He's still doing. And I get the honor of being a part of that work. And so I've been a part, I ran that organization for about five years until I had gotten cancer and had to slow all the way down. Um, but I've still been a volunteer and helped grow their club outreach. And now we're, we're doing some like research in our city to try to figure out some new things that maybe we should be doing. Um, and so I think the passion lies with, there are some of my sisters that are missing. And if your sister was missing, would you just continue living life as normal? Mm. No, like everything changes when someone's missing in your life. Mm. And so I still feel that, like I still take a seat at the table because all of my sisters are not here yet. Until they're all here, then I can get up. But until that day, I think I still feel a a high call to press in and to love and to fight and to learn some special set of skills so that we can slay this demon that roams in our city. So. Mm. Mm. Wow. wow. So <laughs> I feel like I have a thousand and a half questions after <laughs> listening to that too, but you, you kind of dropped a little bit of a nuclear bomb when you mentioned kidney cancer or cancer, kidney cancer, I guess is what. Yeah. So man, how has that shaped your, your life and ministry? Yeah, well, I I was misdiagnosed for almost two to three years. Um, and that could be, again, a whole another podcast as <laughs> how the medical system treats Black women and disregards their pain. Um, so I was told towards the end of that, like, the pain you're feeling, you're just going to have to live with it for the rest of your life. It's just like a little something that's off. They couldn't figure it out. Um, and so when we actually realized something was wrong. They thought I had um, a kidney infection. 
So they treated me for a kidney infection for about two weeks. They were like, there's a huge abscess in your kidney. We have to treat it with this antibiotics. We're going to do this stuff. Um, and then the abscess didn't go away after two weeks. And so they're like, we'll give you more medication. Don't worry. Don't worry. And it wasn't until the fourth, my fourth week checkup that they were like starting to use um, mass instead of abscess. And I remember starting to think like, uh, not kidney cancer. Um, cancer doesn't run in my family. I'm the first one. Um, and I always, I always thought, guys, I'm just be honest. I always thought kidney cancer was a white man thing, old white guy thing, because um, those are the only people I've ever known who's had kidney cancer. Hmm. Um, and so finally, after getting a second opinion, they were like, it is huge. And we can't save any of your kidney. We're going to have to take your entire left kidney. Mm. And they're like, are you available next week, Tuesday? This is on a Thursday. Today. Oh, so, my. Like, next, I got an opening. And I'm like, uh, well, I got to figure out my, this is how, when you don't take care of yourself. Well, I got to make the transition with organization. And I need to get some stuff together. And then with the kids, blah, blah, blah. And my husband looked at me like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> we are available. She's available. She might be available. Um, and so I, the thing, the thing about it, even when they misdiagnosed me the first time and they told me, um, we think you have an access I was waiting for um, my husband to come pick me up from the hospital. And I thought, you know what? I should pray. This is after three days in the hospital of not praying. Finally, I thought, I'm leaving. I should pray and just see what the Lord is saying. What kind of comforting words does he have for me? And I I felt like the Lord told me, um, I have more to say about what's happening, but you need to be still. And I was like, what you mean you got more to say? Like. It's an abscess. Just tell me now. Why don't you just tell me now? Uh, If you guys have not realized from now, I like to speed a lot. And I like the Lord to keep up with me. Um, And he had more to say. And it wasn't until four weeks later that that more to say came true and and became became real and was revealed. And um, there was a sense of peace that I had that the Lord was already like, preparing my heart. Uh, so I didn't feel shocked. I didn't feel nervous because I felt like the Lord was with me. And what what's going to get me through this, this process, this season is to be still and not to race and not to worry about when there's something happens. Um, and so I cleaned on to that, went through my first surgery. And guys, I had like internal bleeding. <laughs> and I wow. had to push wow. in for another surgery. And that theme, that word of being still um, was something that I had to like, was made real going into the second surgery. Um, and I, I just felt like the Lord had spoke so clearly and that really slowed me down. Like mm. since mm. that moment, which has been, August is going to be seven years. Since that moment, um, I have really set a different pace in my life mm. um, and try to really learn what does it look like to live in the presence of the Lord? What does stillness look like? Mm. Um, in every season, in every moment. Um, and so I've learned that lesson or I'm learning, still learning that lesson. But I think the lesson that I learned was like, I need to cling to stillness mm. in all of the, the, the seasons. So yeah, yeah. I have one kidney. So now that we're friends, <laughs> that's, that's like a negotiation between like, who's going to be friends with me, who's not like <laughs> keep your kidney healthy. 
because if I ever need, if this one for some reason, you know, decides to go out, y'all need another one. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) I know that recently you you just sense that this is a season of transition in your own life. How are you navigating that? Not just logistically, but just in our inner world, transitions and ministry are, they can be very difficult and draining. Yeah. How are you navigating that? Yeah, I think uh, it's so it's very fresh still. So there's a lot of emotion, a lot of grief, a lot of sadness, and a lot of lament. Um, and I, I think the lament, half of it is, you know, the ending of the season of with, with a family and a community that I've been with for more than 15 years, right? Um but I think it's also the dying of the dreams that I had mm. the dreams that I even didn't know was there. Like I didn't realize some of these things were even um, a part of my world until everything was kind of coming to an end. And what I also had to release are the hopes and dreams. Um, and so it's a lot, it's messy and, I don't know how to say it well, and I don't know how to communicate it well. And part of me wants to, um, you know, wait till I have a dissertation that sounds appropriate and clean um, to be able to share with the community around me. And um, I don't want to be still. You know, I talked about stillness. I don't want to be still because when I am still, I feel all the things. If I stay busy, then I don't have to feel. I don't have to come to terms. I don't have to wrestle with uh, my emotions, my feelings, um, but then trying to be still and feeling them wash over you and then not being able to do all the things you want to do because you're spending 45 minutes crying and processing and journaling um, when you need to be writing a talk for Fresh Expressions. You know, I'm speaking Mm -hmm. at Fresh Expressions and I'm like, okay, let's get some time to like pray and process and start writing my stuff. And then I weep for 45 minutes and I'm just like, I hope you use this Lord for Fresh Expressions, you know, but I, I think it's all a part. It's all a part of it. And, you know, I think what I'm trying to do in this season is to be very honest and open about how I feel um, the good and the bad, you know, I, I feel hopeful. I feel like the Lord is doing something. I feel like the Lord is the one calling me to end this time. Um, and so I trust him and I trust that there will be more for me, that there'll be new hopes and dreams to come. Um, but in the middle of that, trying to embrace my community, um, and not just like the two or three, um, and I think in like leadership spaces, it was I was always kind of taught like keep it tight, keep it close because you don't want to. Um, I don't know. Maybe our people aren't mature enough to handle it. You don't want to cause division. You don't want to be divisive. You don't want to. There's a lot of things that I can talk about up there, but I just felt like the Lord was like, you know, uh, this is the, your community, my house church. This is your community. You need to be honest and open with these people so that they could also rally around you and hold you and pray for you and discern with you. And it just doesn't have to be your three, like allow the 12 to, to come to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's messy. Um, you know, I, I still am trying to be very careful to share. Um, 
the messiness of it and encourage people to like hear from Jesus for themselves. I'm not making a call for everybody to leave and follow me. I'm not trying to do an exodus. Um, But I do feel like as people hear, they need to respond to what they sense and what they feel for themselves. Mm. And that means this community, what they feel about this community, what they feel about me and how all of that affects them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we had a family meeting and we're just like, we're, this is what church does. We're, we're just going to bring it all out. And a lot of people shared and a lot of people cried and we prayed and we sang and um, we ate flan at the end. <laughs> flan always makes things better. As someone who grew up in Puerto Rico, I'll tell you, flan always makes oh. things taste better. <laughs> always, always. Uh, it's like Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and all of us were just in there chilling and flan came and we're like, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, I, Keisha, one of the things that I I have great respect for you hearing this story, even more respect, is the no spin zone. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy in churches to just say, well, the Lord called me elsewhere. He might have, but I always tell pastors, don't use that phrase. <laughs> There's just yeah. something that triggers, oh, that doesn't smell right. There's some yeah. other story when you use the phrase, the Lord called me elsewhere. Yeah. Even if he did, say it differently. Right. And yeah. so I so appreciate the courage and the vulnerability that you and your husband are willing to lean into to say, here it is. We're not going to hide anything. Mm-hmm. We're open. We're an open book. We're an open kitchen. Um, that's an analogy I like to use a lot is, you know, you can watch us cook your food, you know, like we have nothing to hide back here in the kitchen. Just, yeah. just watch us and yeah. uh, participate with us. And yeah. so I just appreciate that. I bet there, are, uh, my guess is there are even fears to not hold the cards close to the vest, but like lay them all out as you're sharing with this community that you know, that loves you and you love them. But what are some of those vulnerable feelings that, you know, that you have as you're laying this out with them recently that this transition? Yeah, I think the trope of the angry Black woman is real. And I don't want that to be a part of the narrative that Mm. somehow Keisha just up here doing all this stuff. And, you know, that the narrative control becomes something that is totally not. Mm. Um, I think that the other thing, I don't want people to feel like I'm somehow like infecting Mm. people. by t- being honest about my experience. Um, and I, I want I want people to hear what Jesus is doing in my life. Like, mm-hmm. this is what he's doing. He's actually bringing me to terms with some things that I felt. And so I, I'm really glad you said that thing about, like, I feel like the Lord is calling me somewhere else because I don't. I don't feel like he's calling me somewhere else. I feel like he's calling me away from this thing. Mm-hmm. And people don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to respond to that. And I'm okay with the ambiguity in the middle that you don't know how to respond. Mm. Um, instead of having a, a neat, like two line, this is what you need to say when people are asking. Mm. And I think uh, the last thing is probably, you know, we had this conversation in our community where it's like, my story is my story. You don't get to co-op my story and be like, oh yeah, this is what everybody, you know, no, figure out your own story, share your story. Don't share mine. Like, and if people want to know my story, then tell them to come. I'm very free to share my story, but we're not going to try to co-op each other's story and make it um, Godzilla, you know, and make it bigger than it is or a transformer. Like we all kind of grab onto each other and become like super, super lever people. It's, it's not that it's, you have to say yes to the Lord in your journey 
And this is what it looks like for me to say yes to the Lord in my journey. And hopefully we're helping disciple people in a new way of how to make these transitions in a way that's healthy and right. And I'll be honest, I don't know if it's right. Like mm. part of me still feels like I should be doing the spin though, right? Because mm. are these people mature enough to hear this? Like who, I don't get to make that determination. Um, but I feel the tension. I feel the tension. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. We'd love to ask you one more question here. I think of those who might be listening who are either considering a transition or going through it. Or maybe the transition was forced on them. This wasn't mm-hmm. their choice. Mm-hmm. And so they're feeling lost or or like, Lord, okay, you called me out of this and you haven't really been clear as to what I'm going into. And so there's confusion or silence or wilderness, whatever metaphor we want to use. Yeah. What would you want to say specifically to listeners who may be in that place of transition or lament or sadness or confusion? Yeah. I would say to fight for stillness. Mm. Um I I think the thing that is getting me through is being aware of the presence of the Lord in the middle of the wilderness or the desert or the confusion. Um, And I don't think I feel that until I'm still enough to like sense it and and fighting to stillness means the weeping and the crying and the anger and the frustration. And, you know, so fighting to go through that, to get to a place where it's all out on the table that there's all you're transparent with the Lord about how you feel about all of it. Um, and I mean the good and the bad. So being like some of the psalmists and, you know, smite the old Lord. I, I was like, Lord, Lord, do what you need to do. They, is, do you still do that? I don't know, but I will be open. Like being honest about all the emotions, all the feelings, all the anger, and then getting to a place where you can just like breathe and be still and allow the Lord again to then breathe life, new life, new dreams, new ideas, to heal those places, to uh, bring correction to the places that are, you know, that are not right. Um, so it's hard. So I would, I would tell someone that's going through it, like, I know it is hard, but we, but you have a little bit left to fight for stillness. Mm-hmm. And so use that little bit that you have left to fight for that. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, Keisha, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for the role that you play. And we want to be those supporters or encouragers, even if it's from afar, to say, keep going. <laughs> and um, not that you need us to do that, but we just sense it's so important. Our female, our sisters who are pastors and our leaders, we just want to keep being cheerleaders for you mm-hmm. and what you're doing. Appreciate that. And that's so crucial. And we, even when you're discouraged, and there, there, we just, we along with others, want to just cheer you on. Mm-hmm. You are gifted, mm-hmm. and we want you to keep going. And uh, we're so grateful for you, even as you're feeling this sense of lament in the transition. We yeah. still see God's gifts uh, in your life and how you want to steward that well. So we're really thankful, and thanks for joining us here on this conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate you. It feels like this conversation is timely, too, in what the Lord yeah. is doing and just having some white guys rally around me and be like, we see you. We Bring do. all of it. Bring your pink yeah, lipstick yeah. and your earrings and your hair, and let's do yep. it. You know. Yep. And so I, I really appreciate you guys. Yeah, grateful for you. Thanks. I'm so deeply grateful for Keisha. What a story. (laughs) 
So many good things. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of reeling a, li- a bit still. <laughs> she mentioned a few times, that'd be a whole other podcast. I feel like, yeah. yeah our so, six-part interview yeah, our six with part. Keisha. Yes. Yeah. I'm so grateful for her. I mean, you know, being a Belizean woman, a woman of color, a kidney cancer survivor. She's in the midst of transition right now. Mm. I just, I so appreciate her willingness to be raw and honest um, in the midst of it now. Not, yes. I transitioned three years ago, but she's in it like this month right now. Yeah. Very raw, very close, very fresh for her. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate too that she was even in the raw and the honest space, there's just such deep hope too. And the way that she really seems to be uh, just present to the stuff. And it, it's like, I think that's the gift of, of what, of what I just noticed as she was speaking is like, Entering into those hard spaces are really difficult, but yet God shows up in there and and it, he just has a way of redeeming them. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, she mentioned wanting to kind of speed through all that stuff and get to the yeah. other side. Boy, that was such a word for, I think, for many pastors today, just in terms of, hey, you, we might want to speed through this, but maybe God's slowing this down because the stillness piece, mm. which I just... That that felt like an atomic bomb dropped in my soul today, which was just really encouraging to me. Um, but yeah, what are some things that really jumped out? I mean, so much, but what jumped out off the page for you? There were two. This is why we need the perspective of those who are different than us. You know, you and I as white males, it's very important for us to learn. We know that in theory, but like there are two specific things I've never seen before that because of her context, help me understand. She talked about Moses oh, yes. and his identity. And how, you know, growing up in an Egyptian context when he was Jewish and to be away from that and then to come back into that and some hesitancy and that, never thought about mm-hmm. that. She also talked about the Samaritan woman. Did Was she listened to because it was her own people? Mm-hmm. All, those are two cultural layers, two stories that I just don't see as a white male. So I so appreciated how she brought that in. And it also made me think how she said that she needed her community not just a few people, but her whole community, no spin zone, to, to care for her and her husband in this season. It made me think of the story in Mark 2 of the paralyzed man, that sometimes the harder position isn't to pick up a shovel and dig a hole for others who are paralyzed. It's to allow people to dig holes for us, mm-hmm. to receive the help. And it, it showed me a lot of her character of her willingness to allow others to pick up shovels and dig for her and her willingness to admit, I need help. I'm on the mat right now. And I need you all to do whatever you can to bring me to the feet of Jesus. Mm. So two things she said and one thing that sort of triggered it. But uh, I'm really grateful for that. But I also, when I asked her, you know, what does flourishing look like for you? Immediately she said, dreaming. Yes. I'm dreaming. Yes. That was very cool. That was really and cool. And I've never thought about that. But I think in many ways, when I'm at my healthiest, I dream. She and I are wired very similarly. I'm not a painter. I'm not a, you know, musician. I don't make films. I don't write poems. But I come up with ideas. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm dreaming, it is a reminder that I'm healthy. Things are popping. There's hope there. Yes. And so that was really cool. Personally, because yeah. I think we're wired similarly, I needed that. That was yeah. great. That was yeah. great. I The dreaming thing was really, for me too, it was the same things. It was the Moses story. It was the Samaritan woman. And just realizing how we we can't. We can't see it until someone else helps us see it. Yeah. And I was thinking too so much, like how much of the scripture am I missing? And even just in terms of having other people read it and and share what they're seeing, what their insights are in that. I, it, the vantage point is, I feel like it's the whole church, right? Mm. It's getting us to the point of seeing the whole scripture just, just instead of the parts. And 
realize that I, I will never preach from the from Talladega Nights. Uh, not not that I have, but if I was going to, that's that's been never ruined. seen that movie yeah. myself. But I I know enough about the references that where she would feel that. So she talked also about um, the dreaming, but she also said in this hard space that she is flourishing when she's eating well, yes. when she's working out, when she's got friends and family around her. Do I hear Jesus? Dreaming, and then she talked about fighting for stillness, which sounds a little counterintuitive because mm. if you're fighting, how can you be still? And but I thought that what a fantastic phrase, fighting for stillness yes. when busyness is easier. I mean, Eugene Peterson would always say, uh, "A busy pastor is a lazy pastor," and so the idea of fighting for stillness, you know, what what a what a great word from Keisha on that. Seriously. So, Jared, what are some resources you have for us? Yeah, some resources that come to mind. Um, you know, as far as bridging, she talked about being a bridge. One book that was incredibly helpful, it's been out for maybe 15 or 20 years, uh, called Divided by Faith. And it's a fantastic book. It's written by Michael Emerson and uh, Christian Smith, but Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. That was the first time my eyes were opened up and uh, really found that to be helpful. It's a little bit of an academic book, um, but it's incredibly helpful. Yeah, it was published in 2001. Uh, it comes out. It came out with uh, Oxford University Press. It's not an academic book, but it's not light and fluffy, right. but it was the first time that there's clear data on how divided we are in terms of church and religion in America. Um, so that's the first one we'd recommend, Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And then the second one is a book that you and I have read, uh, Doug, called Paul's Idea of Community, The Early House Churches in Their Cultural Setting, uh, which is written by Robert Banks. And if any of you are out there, I mean, our church is kind of based on this model of micro churches and house churches, but some of you are like, what is that? How does that work? Is that even biblical? What does that look like? This is a great uh, book that really helped us in our yes. early stages of developing Renew and our model, similar to what um, Keisha's used to, is the idea that when Paul's writing a letter uh, to Ephesus or to Philippi or Colossae, those entire churches are like 30 to 40 people. They're not three or 400 people, and they're meeting in a home, not in a building. And that's really helpful. So if you want to know more, we want to give you that resource as well. And then the last one, Keisha mentioned something that she's going to be speaking at something called Fresh Expressions. And uh, I'm grateful to serve as a trainer uh, with Fresh Expressions US. It's an organization that helps uh, establish churches that are trying to re-envision what the Holy Spirit might be doing in new and creative and fresh ways uh, of seeing church pop up that might not look traditional like we've seen it in the past. But uh, the National Gathering, which you and I are both going to be at, uh, it's called the, the Present Future, Fresh Expressions National, National Gathering. It's April 1st to April 3rd, and it's in Washington, D.C., and uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but uh, freshexpressionsus.org is the umbrella organization that offers training and coaching and um, resources there. But if you want to go on the specific thing, and Keisha is going to be one of the speakers there. Keisha will be there, Todd Bolsinger, who wrote Canoeing the Mountains, Leonard Sweet, and a lot of others. Um, but the website for that uh, conference specifically is fxng2020.org fxng2020.org. 
we'd love to see. It's just a couple weeks away in Washington, D.C., but uh, we'll both be there. We'd love to see you. We'd love to meet you yes. if you're uh, yes. able to come, and we'd love to interact with you further. So those yeah. are some resources. And if you see a guy running around with a camera uh, filming the event, that's our producer. His name is Joel. Uh, give him a high five. Take him out to lunch. Do something awesome because none of this happens without Joel. And Joel so- Limbaun is our silent hero yes. on the Monday Morning Pastor yes. podcast. In fact, maybe we'll throw that in as a resource. If you're looking to do any video work, yeah. uh, check out uh, he uh, Joel at On a Limb. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll we'll include his uh, just his stuff, uh, his email address in there. If you're ever looking to do video work, uh, the guy is a stellar creative. Brilliant. Uh, the stuff he does is just awesome. But just want to leave you with two simple questions. Uh, first one is this: Does your schedule reveal a life that wants to hear from God? And the second one is, what if you fought for 20 minutes of silence this week? And so pastors and leaders, uh, we want to send you out. And so just with this very simple benediction. So brothers and sisters, may you go. And may you fight for stillness this week so you can hear the voice of God.